Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives on urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Neil Reddy. We're so excited to welcome Professor Nicholas Christakis to the show. Professor Christakis is a Sterling Professor of Natural and Social Sciences at Yale University. His research is focused on understanding social networks through their biological and evolutionary determinants, which encompasses studying a broad range of topics from epidemiology and contagion to human behavior and psychology. Professor Christakis has been recognized for his contributions to the field of sociology, was named a member of the Time 100, and has published many articles and books relating to epidemiology and ev evolutionary genetics. In addition to his research, Professor Christakis has practiced medicine in the field of palliative care for many years and con continues to advocate for academic freedom and free speech on college campuses. Welcome, Pro Professor Christakis. We are so honored to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, Neil, and call me Nicholas. Thank you. Um, so I guess we'll start with uh, your journey as a physician and a professor, which is a quite unique intersection. Um, so like our a plurality of our audience is affiliated with academia in some way. So we'd love to hear how you got started on your track to becoming a physician scientist and what brought you to this unique intersection of sociology and evolutionary biology. Well, it's hard to know how long-winded to be. I mean, the story is a kind of peripatetic kind of wandering in the wilderness story. Um, when I was a boy, my mother was diagnosed with a, a serious illness, which ultimately took her life. She died when she was 47 and I was 25. So all my life, she was diagnosed when I was six, all my life, my mother was seriously ill and all of my mother's sons became doctors. Uh, so when I went to college, I went to Yale in 1979, I knew I wanted to be a physician. At the time, I thought I wanted to be a reconstructive surgeon uh, and reattach severed extremities. And I also wanted to study linguistics. I was very interested in semiotics at the time, sort of symbolism. And, uh, but I was afraid to do that because I thought if I studied something non-wet benchy, that it would compromise my ability to get into medical school, which was a stupid fear. It was un unwarranted. I could have gotten it anyway. But at the time, I you know didn't have a lot of guidance and wasn't able to think independently as much as I would like. And um, so I switched to biology. So I studied biology as an undergrad. And then I applied to medical school. I actually took a year off when I was in college. And I worked in uh, at Woods Hole Marine Biology Labs for half the year. And the other half of the year, I worked in a, in a virology lab in Paris, actually, believe it or not, studying coronavirus by sheer coincidence. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, but I thought I would have this very exalted position. But in fact, my job was just to go out. I applied for this job and they hired me just because I spoke English. That was like the only skill I had. They wanted me to help write their scientific papers. And when I got there, they handed me this little stainless steel pooper scooper and sent me to the streets of Paris to collect dog feces uh, to bring back to the lab to 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 extract rotavirus and coronavirus and other viral um, elements from the poop. So that was my job basically. <laughs> I was in Paris to, to speak English and collect you know dog shit. Uh, but anyway, uh, so then I took a next year off. I graduated from uh, college in '84. And then I went to Harvard Medical School. And it was while I was at medical school that my mother finally was terminally ill, was dying. And um, and then the first year I was in, in medical school, I was skipping class a lot to operate with this uh, fantastic 
reconstructive surgeon, a man by the name of John Mulliken, and had these extraordinary experiences, but very quickly decided that surgery was not for me. Um, I was not a morning person. I was not particularly given to hierarchy, um, which is very, surgery was very hierarchical. And, uh, and the kind of social science aspect of me was sort of active. And I, I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to be a scientist. And I thought being a surgeon would not make that easy. Uh, and then, as I said, my mother was very sick and she ultimately died in 87. And I took a year off that year to help care for her. I, I was in Boston. She was in Washington, D.C. That was also the year I met my wife in 1987. And, uh, and I got an MPH, a Master in Public Health degree, which was a much easier schedule to tolerate than being on the wards uh, in order to go back and forth to D.C. as needed. And it was during that year that I kind of my interest in the social sciences was rekindled. I took some courses in epidemiology and biostatistics and health policy and health behavior. And I kind of remembered what, what I liked about sort of understanding human social behavior. And so I decided to get a, that plus the fact that I knew I needed to get some more advanced training if I was going to actually be a scientist and run my own lab. So I decided to get a PhD. And then how I picked a PhD in sociology was completely serendipitous. Because sociology is not a particularly high status social science, although I think it's magnificent in its own way. Uh, so I could have chosen economics or anthropology or psychology or sociology. I considered all of those, but I met a, a wonderful woman by the name of Renee Fox at the University of Pennsylvania who had a big effect on me. And I decided to go work with her at UPenn. So when I graduated from Harvard Medical School in 1989, so I was uh, 27, I went to the University of Pennsylvania to do my clinical training in internal medicine and my fellowship in, in general internal medicine and get my PhD in sociology. So finally, in 1995, at the age of 33, I finished my formal education <laughs> and, uh, and went to work at the University of Chicago as an assistant professor and, and uh, started my laboratory, set up, uh, set up my lab. That's a very long-winded uh, answer, but. I have very complex feelings about my relationship to medicine because I think it's, it's, it's morally fulfilling to be a doctor. And I'm proud of the fact that I was a doctor and I took care of patients who were dying. I did hospice medicine until about 10 years right. ago. But at the same time, I probably could have done much of what I'm doing not having been a doctor. And, and, and training in medicine consumes at least seven years of your life, four years of medical school, at least three years of residency in your 20s, very valuable years. It's basically a carceral experience. Like training to be a doctor, you're like a prisoner in a hospital. You have very limited control over your hours and where you work and who, what you do. And, and it's a long time in a crucial time in your life in your 20s. And so it's a big sacrifice. And I wonder sometimes whether those years in that epoch of my life might have been spent in a different way. But I've had, I derive a lot of satisfaction from being a doctor, from having been a doctor. I, I've had extraordinary experiences that other humans haven't had. You know, I've saved people's lives. I personally have done that. I can think of times when I walked into a patient's room and did something that yep. saved their lives. I've, I learned an incredible fund of knowledge. Like I learned about the human body. You know, that's like a, 
a valuable thing to know. And I participated in an ancient tradition, you know, which is also moving, you know, of being a healer. So, so I have complicated feelings about it. But, you know, then I went, and, and, and the work I do is health inflected. I mean, everything I, all the research I do, or not all of it, much of it has relevance to public health and human well being. And so, you know, my training as a doctor has informed that, but I probably could have done it without the training. So it's complicated. For sure. Yeah. And it's certainly given you a perspective that's very unique in terms of looking at our population and the organization of society, which is kind of the the center of your book, Blueprint, which I want to discuss. Um, So could you quickly summarize what led into the process of writing this book and, and what you aim to do with it? Well, you're picking you're picking um, the third of the three books I've written. Uh, so it evolved from other interests and other stuff. But just focusing right. on Blueprint, which was published in 2019, the subtitle for which is "The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society." I've had a, I had a couple of motivations. One motivation was that I thought that for far too long, both scientists and the person on the street had focused on the dark side of human nature, our propensity for violence and selfishness and cruelty and mendacity. But equally, we are prone to be good. We are capable of love and friendship and cooperation and teaching and all these wonderful qualities. And in fact, these qualities must necessarily, in my judgment, have been more powerful than the forces of evil. You know, that that because if, if every time I came near you, you killed me or you were you know mean to me or you filled me with lies i would be better off living apart from you so so the benefits of a connected life must have outweighed the costs and i think they did outweigh the costs and that's what why natural selection has shaped us to be social actually in a very particular way and endowed us with all these wonderful pro-social qualities so the book in part is motivated by a desire to um to provide a gentle corrective to the more dark perspectives on human nature. And by the way, this concern for human nature is also ancient. Like their philosophers have been thinking about, (coughs) are humans good or are they bad for hundreds, thousands of years? So, you know, I'm just one other guy, like adding his voice to this conversation. Right. Uh, And, um, you know, do we have a kind of um, Hobbesian view of humans as, you know, red in tooth and claw, or do we have a more Rousseauian view of, you know, a kind of uh, a good state of nature mm-hmm. goes way back. So I'm kind of in a Rousseauian end of the spectrum. Uh, and th- so that's one reason. And the second had to do with my desire to advance a set of arguments about, you know, there's a lot of use of evolutionary biology and genetics to divide human beings. But actually, this can unite human beings. You know, we are all of us human after all, and we come from the same evolutionary wellspring. And so there's a way in which you can use a deeper understanding of how natural selection has shaped us to highlight our common humanity, to highlight the fact that underneath all this variation from place to place, all this cultural variation, all these differences between groups of people, Underneath that, and actually much more important than that, is 
our common humanity, is our shared evolutionary past. And I'll give you one tiny metaphor and then I'll shut up. You know, I think too often people look around and they see, ah, oh, there's a hill of 300 meters and there's a hill of, of 900 meters. And they think, oh, the hills are such different in size. And they obsess about these differences between groups, you know, this group is this way and that group is that way. But what they don't realize is that they are standing on a 10,000 meter plateau. That if they st stood further back, they would actually see that those two things, which they thought were so different, those two hills of, 3, 000, of 300 meters and 900 meters, are actually two mountains, one of which is 10,300 meters and the other of which is 10,900 meters and are not so different at all. Uh, and so that's the other thing the book attempts to do. It, it attempts to provide an account of our common humanity, which account is, is of our goodness. Um, anyway, and it has a, uses a lot of different yeah, methods yeah. and a lot of different approaches. Yeah, it's, I found that really interesting and especially the point about perspective that you just mentioned. Um, and I guess one thing in the book that I find really relevant is this sort of idea of outgroups and in-groups and cohesion within in-groups and how that may affect the perception of outgroups. And you observe, observe both that cohesion within, say, a country could perhaps inform the dislike of a country. And like example is United States and, and Russia during the, uh, the Cold War. So how much would you say, based on your findings, is our cohesion or in-group attachments, how much are they defined by the perception of an enemy? Because I find that kind of a controversial sort of way of defining whether we are good or bad as humans. Well, the first point to make is that humans are by nature tribalistic, that we, we like to define and identify with a particular in-group, often, but not always, by reference to an out-group. And there's a set of arguments. So we have this capacity to make, first of all, arbitrary distinctions. There's a wonderful set of experiments that were done with little babies that were given, or toddlers that were given, arbitrarily given green and, and yellow t-shirts. And then they were asked, you know, what should be done to the the little baby, the kids with the other color t-shirt. And they were like, those are awful children. They should be punished. You know, they shouldn't get toys, which is absurd. You know, this so-called so, so right. the, the minimal, uh, the, not the minimal difference paradigm. I'm blocking on the technical term for it right now, um, where you make this most minimal of interventions, the minimal group paradigm, when you make this most minimal of interventions, just arbitrarily assigning a t-shirt color and suddenly everyone loves their own group and hates the other group, even in little tiny kids, for example. So these minimal group paradigm experiments and many other lines of work show that this tendency to privilege our own group and either ignore or, or despise the outgroup is very primitive, very fundamental to our humanity. Incidentally, similar qualities are seen in non-human animals, which have much less cultural capacity than we do, which is another line of evidence that suggests that this is not taught so much as inborn. So, uh, so, so we have this capacity to, uh, first of all, to draw distinctions, uh, almost in a Hegelian way, you know, dichotomous distinctions. Right. And in addition to that, we have um, this fact that we prefer our own groups to other groups. Now, some evolutionary biologists have argued that 
these two qualities, these this um, this that cooperation, the ability to cooperate, and ethnocentrism, the preference of one's own for one's own group, had to co-appear, had to co-evolve. And I can give you a little model for this. So imagine, imagine that there were a thousand people, and I said to you, and you were one of them, and I said to you, go be nice to these people, be kind and altruistic, make sacrifices, give of yourself to others without necessarily an expectation of reciprocity. This would be quite a challenge for you because first of all, if you were nice to one person, you might never see them again. There are a thousand people in your group. You might not be able to remember who they were or you might never encounter them again. So you might have never have no expectation that they would ever reciprocate. You might feel at risk. And in fact, you would be at risk of being taken advantage of. But now imagine if instead, I add what's known as some structure to the population. I divide this group of a thousand into 10 groups of a hundred. And I give them each a different color flag, you know, purple and green and yellow flags. And now I say to you, no, so in the first experiment, when there are a thousand in the unstructured population, then I measure how cooperative everyone is. And I might discover that nobody is cooperative in that situation. So the average rate of cooperation in the population of a thousand is close to zero. No one is altruistic. No one is kind to anyone else in this unstructured population. Now I divide the group into 10 groups of 100. I give every group a flag. And now I say, be nice just to the people in your own group. Now your challenge is much easier because you just look for the other people carrying purple flags and you're nice to them and the other purple flag people are nice to you. And now you might find that the average level of cooperation amongst the whole thousand has risen when you've added some so-called structure to the population. So here we can see just in the simple model that the ability to elicit cooperation from a group of people and the constituent individuals may depend on the ability to foster in them a distinction between us and them. And so many evolutionary biologists have generated models that show that ethnocentrism and cooperativity and altruism may have co-evolved, may have appeared at the same time. And there's a lot of convergent evidence about this idea. So, 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 so our capacity for in-group bias and in-group preference and preference probably deeply connected our, ironically to our capacity for altruism and is deeply um, primitive. This is very ancient in us as a species. Of course, bacteria can cooperate too, by the way. We're not the only animals right. that cooperate and many other animals, but we're just talking about humans right now. But then you ask the question, well, okay, why, why do we have to hate the outgroup? Why, why can't we just love our own group and let's say be indifferent? You know, there's a world of a difference between loving your own group and deciding to take the outgroup to the gas chambers, right? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we see a lot of that gas chamber behavior, right? The genocide and the, and the slavery, uh, these awful things that we humans also are capable of doing. So why? Why, do, why does that happen? And that's a troubling question with not, without an easy answer. But, but I guess the last thing I'd like to say as part of my answer to your question is that, um, is that uh, uh, hold on, I lost my train of thought. Give me one second. Um, the um, in-group and out-group and, uh, oh, the, the, the uh, Soviet Union. There's another line of work that shows that one of the ways you can break down these divisions is exactly by exploiting the arbitrariness of those divisions. 
So what you might, so all that, the trope of the aliens that invade the earth and then all the divisions between human nations and peoples fall away and we all unite to fight the aliens, you know, there's some common threat. When there's a common threat that's superordinate to the group divisions, then those divisions, we can say, oh, those aren't important anymore. Previously, we thought those were crucially important. Now we think, oh, those are not important. Arbitrary, right? And then we can um, work together against a common enemy. So the existence of a common enemy is a strategy that brings groups together. And, and this has been experimentally shown and, um, and seen in ethnographically, and there's a lot of convergent evidence about this. And, um, and so one of the speculations that, as you said, that I offer and that others have also offered is that one of the reasons we are seeing so many more divisions in our so now moving from the evolutionary sweep of things just to a more recent and historically contingent and specific question which is the united states in 2021 and it's very one has to make these kind of moves very carefully intellectually and empirically but one possible idea is when the soviet union collapsed one possible explanation for all the divisions that seem so ascendant in our society today is precisely the collapse of the Soviet Union. When we had a common enemy, we were much more united and less interested in the divisions among Americans. And now, and maybe that'll happen, by the way, again, with the rise of China, I don't know. But one theory as to why Americans seem so divided right now, and there are many, many explanations, it's not a unitary explanation, has to do with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the loss of a, of a shared enemy. <laughs> Which, which, yeah. and, and that arises from these fundamental human traits that we have. Right, totally. And kind of just to circle back on your, your the central thesis of the book and how this might conflict with that. How do you reconcile the fact that our cohesion, our goodness as humans, is sort of tied to making enemies? It, it seems to contradict the uh, the point that I think the the thesis of the no. book is. No, no, I don't think so. First of all, it's not that's only one potential root cause of cooperation. There are many other root causes of cooperation. So it's not the only one. Okay. First, and second, there's a kind of yin and yang here. In a way, to hold our propensity for evil in check, we had to evolve these good capacities. So it's not that. Um, so I don't see it the way you see it. Uh, you know, right. I think that we have these wonderful qualities, which um, which have arisen for a host of reasons. I mean, one other reason, for instance, that we, for example, it's not, we, you know, like many other animals or most other animals, we, we mate with each other. We, we have sex with each other and many animals do that. But uh, we also do something else, which is very unusual is we don't just form sexual unions with other members of our species. We form um, we form long term non reproductive unions with unrelated other individuals, namely we have friends. And this is very rare in the animal kingdom, we have friends, um, certain other primates have friends, elephants have friends, certain cetacean species have friends, and this is exceptionally rare in the animal kingdom. Uh, and it's miraculous our capacity for friendship and our capacity for friendship is related to and arises in part because of the benefits of sharing information. The fact that when we live socially, we can uh, share information with each other of value about how to basically cope with our environment and survive. So one of the other reasons that we cooperate is so that we can live in social groups and benefit 
from the knowledge that other members of our groups have. So there are other routes of cooperation other than, let's say, other than, you know, this this uh, desire to make war on uh, on outgroups. Right. Got it. So you'd, you'd cast that as probably just one cause of why we make friends. And the end game here is that friends and our social groups make us fundamentally good beings, you would say? Well, this is a more complicated philosophical argument, which then can become a, a real hard problem in moral philosophy. But right. I would argue, I would, and I discussed that in the tw chapter 12 of Blueprint, and here I use some of Philippa Foote's work. Um, mm -hmm. And I, um, the, the issue is, is um, I would posit that things like, like love and friendship and cooperation and teaching are not only fundamentally human qualities, but fundamentally good qualities. And that we have been endowed with these qualities for the reasons we've been been uh, been uh, discussing. Now, what makes them good is another is a sort of a question right. of philosophy we can talk about if you want. But I, I think it would be hard pressed to argue that having French that friendship is evil. Uh, sure. And yeah. certainly, most people don't feel that way. In fact, I don't know. I've never met anyone who feels that friendship is evil. <laughs> Uh, so in any society, and we've we've mapped we've 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 worked on friendship in countries all over the world. In in uh, uh, amongst the Hadza hunter gatherers of Tanzania, amongst the Nyangatom of Sudan, we've worked in India, in Honduras, in Uganda, uh, in the United States. I mean, my laboratory has done work on friendship all over the world, and I I don't think I've ever met someone who said that friendship is evil. I anyway. Yeah. So friendship is a is a cultural universal. All right. And um, I, I guess it's a very hopeful message. And certainly I, I encourage our audience to check out Blueprint if they have the opportunity. But I'd like to move our discussion on to your more recent book, Apollo's Arrow, which is a lot more pertinent to uh, what's going on right now in the world with COVID-19. Um, and so I guess what I found really interesting was the way you frame pandemics and, and plagues in general as just sort of a fact of human history. And the idea that we're just, we're, the, the idea of a pandemic is new to us, but not necessarily new to humans. Could you delve into that further and, and talk about how, why COVID-19 has managed to, been, managed to be such a problem for our, I guess, more advanced generation of humans? Well, so, I, so Blueprint was published in 2019. I wasn't expecting to write, I only write a book every 10 years. I mean, usually I, I'm, I'm a, scientist that works in my lab and I publish scientific papers and then I do a book every 10 years or so and I was I'm working on another one which will be ready God knows when but the pandemic struck and I thought I had something to say and as you point out I wrote this book that came out in 2020 uh, and part of that book was motivated as you suggest by you know the fact that I was stunned by how flat-footed our nation was in the beginning of 2020 and because to me it was obvious what was about to happen and partly because i had been trained in medicine and in public health and there's a, there are all these epidemiologists and virologists and medical historians who you know we have the we have a repository of wisdom in our society about respiratory pandemics and plagues more generally we're not the first generation of human beings to confront this and so i was just stunned by our you know we were like the keystone cops and but but it turns out that not it turns out, but it, it is the case that that is actually very typical. So this way we've come to live feels very alien and unnatural. 
but it's actually neither of those things. Plagues are a fundamental feature of the human experience. They're in the Bible. A lot of my Jewish friends in, in uh, Passover of 2020 in the spring were like, all these years of my life, I went to the Seder and I, I never really thought about the plague, but now I really understand, you know, what my ancestors were talking about. And, uh, and um, they're in the Bible, they're in, they're in the Iliad. I mean, the, the canonical work of Western fiction begins with a plague. Apollo is smiting the Greeks uh, because uh, for various reasons, it's a magnificent story we can go into if you want. Uh, and the Greeks are dying and the funeral pyres are burning night and day. By the way, as happened in India, 3,000 years after the events in Troy, this past summer in India, when they were hit with Delta, so many people died so fast, they almost ran out of wood. They were burning bodies. They almost ran out of wood to burn the bodies of the people who were dying. Thousands of years later, the same thing as in the opening of the Iliad, right? A powerful human experience. So plagues are in the Bible. They're in the Iliad. They're in Shakespeare. They're in Cervantes. They're a fundamental part of the human experience. And so the idea is that plagues are not new to our species. They're just new to us. You know, we think this is crazy, but our ancestors, they tried to warn us, right? They reduced these experiences into the, our religious traditions, into our literary traditions. They tried to say, you should know, there's this awful thing that happens. It's called a plague. And when it happens, this is how people suffer. And they, they warned us, they wrote it down because we're cultural animals and we're capable of sharing knowledge. And not only did we have it in our religious and in our literary traditions, but we had it in our scientific traditions. We had expert scientists who knew about this stuff. And yet, and yet, like our ancestors before us, we, we denied it as it was happening. We didn't want to believe it. And incidentally, this COVID-19 pandemic we have had, bad as it is, is actually a pandemic light. It is mild compared to smallpox or cholera or bubonic plague or Ebola. You know, there are pathogens which are like Armageddon, which just kill everyone. And this is not that bad. It's, it's very bad. It's a serious respiratory pandemic. In the end, a, mil a million Americans will die, which is just a catastrophic loss of life within a year or two. Um, and our society has been you know, greatly affected economically, psychologically, socially, and so on. But it's not as bad as if it were, uh, you know, killing 30% of the people. It just, uh, you know, SARS-2 kills about 1% of the people it infects, but there are other coronaviruses, for instance, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, that kill about 30% of the people that they infect. Just imagine, just imagine if everything you and I have experienced the last two years, if instead one of three people we know had died. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, you just think about that. You would not be, yeah. you and I would not be having this kind of relatively normal conversation. We would have the fear of God in us. Uh, right. You know, it would be a, you know, it would be like the movie Contagion. You know, the military would be in the streets. And this is why, by the way, every administration, Republican and Democratic alike, for the last, you know, 30 or 40 years, has treated respiratory pandemics as a national security threat. And why we still need to be vigilant, because there could be another one. These, these, these uh, respiratory pandemics are stochastic. They come at un, un, uneven and uncertain intervals. And, um, you know, they, the serious ones come every 50 to 100 years. But uh, some people believe the interpandemic interval is shortening and we're going to get the, they're coming more frequently, which is probably true. And uh, and uh, the next one could come, I don't know, in in two or five or 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years anytime. And it could be much deadlier.
the, the lethality of the plague is a fundamental property of the pathogen. And pathogens can be any as deadly as they want to be. We don't specify how deadly they are. So, so it's concerning. Yeah, and I guess to touch on that point of severity and I, the trade-off you mentioned in the book between virulence and transmissibility, I find that really interesting. And in a part of the book, you sort of graph this trade-off. And I, I was wondering if you could explain that further and, and with context to the, the variants that we're seeing and how they're growing in transmissibility sometimes or they're growing in severity and how that trade-off kind of works with respect to spreading of the disease. Well, it's, it's still somewhat early days for the Omicron variant. I think, uh, what are we now? We're on December 13th in, um, in 2021. I, um, I think it's likely that Omicron is, uh, is no more, um, is, 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 is more as transmissible or somewhat more transmissible than Delta and is probably no more deadly and probably less deadly than Delta, which is good. Um, but the general theory is that, and this is a theory, that from the point of view of, the, of a pathogen, it doesn't want to kill us. In other words, the pathogen, if, if the pathogen infects you rapidly and makes you seriously ill quickly and then kills you, you stop circulating in the population. Mm. Yeah. But if you have a milder version and you're up and about and you don't die, you circulate it more. Therefore, the idea is that the milder variants are advantaged from a Darwinian point of view and come to predominate in the population. As the virus is mutating, the milder ones come to be more easily transmissible and infect more and more people. And having been infected with a milder variant, you now acquire immunity, so or partial or complete, such that if you're then exposed to a serious variant, you're immune to it. And so this, this combination of factors is theorized militates towards the emergence over time of and the entrenchment in a population over time of milder variants of pathogens as and, and over a great lengths of time you get something called host pathogen coevolution but but the point is that's likely to be true and i would i would guess is what's going to happen with coronavirus but over the short term the virus can do any damn thing it wants so delta for example was more transmissible and deadlier than the original Wuhan strain of the virus. So, um, it, so the, 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 the transmissibility of the virus is measured by something known as the R0, the R sub zero, the basic reproduction number. That's an intrinsic property of the pathogen, which is in a non-immune, normally interacting host population, how many new cases do you get for each old case? And for the Wuhan strain, that's about three. Each case gives rise to three new cases. For typical seasonal flu, that number is about 1.5. A case of the flu barely re reproduces itself. It creates one new case and then half an extra case. If You should have the intuition if the number is below one, the epidemic will decline. You'll get fewer and fewer people with each passing generation of time and it'll disappear, right? If you don't reproduce, if each case doesn't reproduce itself. And endemic is when each case produces one new case, then there's flat. An epidemic is when you have growth in cases. So an R not greater than one is when you get an epidemic. R not less than one itself extinguishes, and R not of one is endemic. So, um, so that's the intrinsic. Uh, that's a property of the virus. That's its intrinsic infectiousness, and the lethality is, of course, measured by the fraction of infected people who die, and that's a different property of the virus. That has to do with 
how deadly is it? And you can have all four quadrants, very infectious, not deadly, very infectious, deadly, not very infectious, not deadly, not very infectious, deadly, and so on. And there are pathogens in every quadrant. Interesting. So I guess that kind of lends itself to my, my next question, which uh, you kind of expound on in the, in the later portions of the book, but I, I kind of wanted to get a sense for our audience what you think the timeline of this virus would be. Um, you mentioned intermediate phases and, and um, the, the future of, the, of our country beyond this virus, but um, could you lay that out in more detail and, and based on what are more recent findings since you published the book, like what you think the future of the pandemic, how, how it'll unfold and, and what you think we have in store? For the next five to ten years? Well, I mean, I think the respiratory coronavirus is pretty much following a playbook for respiratory pathogens. And uh, and the way I think about it is that there are three phases. There's the immediate phase, the intermediate phase, and the post-pandemic phase. And the immediate phase is when we are feeling the full impact of the biological and epidemiological force of the virus. From the point of view, what you have to understand is that we happen to be alive at a very at a moment when a new pathogen has been introduced into our midst and from the virus's perspective it's having what is known as an ecological release it's like an invasive species we have no natural immunity to this pathogen and it's just going to spread spread among us it's like if we had released rats on an isolated pacific island and they overran the place our bodies are that island to the virus which is the rats and the virus is just going to have its way with us it's just going to kill us and spread among us uh it's there's some debate as to whether viruses can be seen as living things, but it's functionally acting like any other living thing. You know, it's just spreading among us. And so, um, uh, and uh, uh, I lost my train of thought. Uh, what were we saying about? Um, sort of the intermediate, like where oh, we right. are in terms of the Yeah, phases. thank yeah. you. So, so, so the virus right now is in that phase and it's going to continue to spread among us until we reach this so-called herd immunity threshold, pretty much unless you're a hermit in the mountains or um, very lucky, you'll either be infected by the virus or vaccinated with it. So pretty much everyone is gonna have to acquire some immunity one way or the other. And it's obviously better to be vaccinated than to be infected. If you, mm -hmm. if you get infected, you have a 1% chance of dying. If you get vaccinated, you have a one in a million chance of dying from the vaccine. So it's very different odds, you know. Anyway, so, um, so, so that's what's going to happen. And, and that immediate phase will last in the United States until 2022, sometime soon, we're going to reach this point in the United States. And of course, the whole world has to catch up with us, which is another story. And then we will enter the intermediate phase. And it's, I think of it like a tsunami. You know, a tsunami washes up ashore. The water is washing inland. It's destroying everything. It's bringing boats from, you know, offshore miles into inland, you know, and depositing these enormous boats, you know, in the middle of cities that are two miles from the shore. Uh, and then the water recedes, which is great, but now you've got to clean up the mess. And so we're soon going to be entering a phase where we have to cope with the clinical and psychological and social and economic aftershocks of the virus. You know, let's not forget, as many as a million Americans will die, probably 10 million Americans will have known those people intimately and will be grieving. A hundred million will know of someone who died. Probably five times as many Americans as die will be disabled by the condition. I'm not talking about long or short COVID. 
you've gotten over your COVID, but your body has been scarred. You have pulmonary fibrosis or renal problems or pancreatic or cardiac or neurologic problems, for example. Maybe 5 million Americans will be in that category. They're going to need our care. Millions of kids have missed school. Millions of people have lost their jobs or have quit. Uh, millions of businesses have gone out of business. We're borrowing trillions of dollars from the future to cope with the present. All of these things are going to require our attention in the intermediate phase, which I think will last a couple of years. And then sometime in 2024 or thereabouts, these are approximate, I think we're going to enter the post-pandemic phase, which I think will be a little bit of a party. It'll be a little bit like the roaring 20s of the 21st century, just like the roaring 20s of the 20th century after the 1918 nice. uh, influenza pandemic. And I think it's very obvious, you know, I think people who survive a catastrophe, whether a war or a famine or an earthquake or a plague, rejoice. And so I think the survivors who've been cooped up because of the plague are going to emerge and are going to relentlessly seek out social interactions, you know, in nightclubs and restaurants and bars and sporting events and political rallies. And I think people who've been conserving their money and saving their money, and there's a lot of evidence for this, that we're doing that just as in past plagues from past centuries, people save their money. We are too. People start spending their money. And so I think we're going to see a lot of kind of ferment in our society uh, during the post-pandemic period, which will begin sometime in 2024. These are all approximate. And by the way, they depend on the non-emergence of worse variants. So there's like a 1% to 10% chance, I would estimate, that we could have a really catastrophic event, which would be the emergence of a fully vaccine-evading strain, which Omicron does not appear to be. Hmm or a much deadlier version of the virus. And if one of those two things were to happen, we would basically be back at square one, uh, like a new, it would be like a new plague and we'd have to hunker oh, down and wait, wait yeah. for new vaccines. So I, I guess that's really enlightening. And I'm curious if that sort of differs from any of the previous, um, if the timeline has probably shifted since maybe the 1918 flu and how, the uh, qualities of this virus dictate the length of time we have to deal with it? Uh, no, it's not too different. I think most respiratory pandemics, serious ones, follow a similar time course. And 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 bubonic plague, I mean, the same thing happened during outbreaks of bubonic plague in medieval Europe. You know, there were these basic phases. Uh, you know, I think it's it's pretty standard. Now, the, the duration will de depend on the circumstances, but the sequence, I think, is roughly roughly the case yeah that's that's very interesting and i hope hopefully we'll get to the um the, the post-pandemic phase sooner than <laughs> four years because that would be the uh well it's just another experience. it's just another yeah. couple it's just another couple of years i mean i think we are yeah. going to have a readjustment you know for example even when we reach soon we reach herd immunity and that everyone has been vaccinated or acquired immunity through natural infection people aren't going to take off their masks all at once some will but it's going to take some time, and and we have all right. these all this backlog of social problems that are need to going to be addressed. You know, it's not going to be an instantaneous return to normal life. You know, it's just not how it works. Yeah, um, and I guess speaking of one of those social problems that I kind of want to touch on, it's the question of academic freedom, which you've been pretty outspoken about. Um, and I kind of want to uh, uh, talk about like the uh, recent wave of censorship and this sort of idea on college campuses and in academic settings of sacrificing free speech for the uh, 
for protecting rights. And I guess that's sort of the the rationale behind a lot of the restrictions we've seen in syllabi and courses. And I wanted to hear your how, thoughts how do you on protect, that. How do you protect rights by constraining speech? I don't understand that. Yeah, so I, so I, I guess the uh, the rationale I've, I've seen personally as a college student is the fact that we have to be careful in, in what we say and, and what we explore just due to the sens- sensibilities and sensitivities of, of certain groups. And I'm, I'm curious to see what your thoughts are. But what right is being, I don't understand the argument. What right is being protected? It would be like me saying, in order to protect me from being harmed, we should incarcerate half the population, right? We don't make the argument that, I'm trying to understand the argument you're advancing. I mean, I'm familiar with some of the anti-free speech arguments, but the idea that censoring speech or constraining speech is a good thing because it, it advances some other fundamental right. I'm not exactly sure what that other fundamental right is. I guess like on college campuses, it's probably just the right to having like a, a space of comfort. And I, I think that's probably the but biggest. But there's no right yeah. to have a space of yeah, comfort. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what that right is. It's, that's not what you come to college for. It's not what most colleges guarantee. And it's not, it's not even, it's not legally recognized. You know, it's like, it's like me saying I have a right not to be uh, assaulted by others. And therefore we're going to get rid of due process. Right. Yes, I, I do have a right not to be assaulted by others, but that has nothing to do with whether we want due process. You know, we should just incarcerate everyone in the town. I was mugged, so everyone should go to jail. I mean, that that's not a logical uh, argument, as far as I'm concerned. No, I think that um, I think that uh, there's a lot I could say about this. The first thing I would say is that is that if you that 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 the attempting to silence other people is weak. It's intellectually weak and it's politically dangerous. Uh, because if you're so confident in the veracity of your ideas, especially when we're talking about elite college campuses, which are about the mm-hmm. safest place for the exchange of ideas as has ever existed in the history of human beings, mm-hmm. engage, win the battle of ideas. Don't try to silence your opponent. And um, that's the first argument. The second argument would be that if, if if, if, if the classic J.S. Mill, Millsian argument, that is, mm-hmm. he who knows only his side of the case knows little of it. If you're certain you're right, you're probably not. You know, talk to your opponent who someone has a different point of view, and you might discover weaknesses in your argument or ways to strengthen your argument. It's only by testing your ideas against someone who holds opposing views that you can understand. This happens, by the way, in science. Right, like the famous uh, discourse of the two chief world systems in Galileo. Some people say the Earth is the center of the solar system. Some people say the Sun is the center of the solar system. Let's look at the evidence for these two claims and right. test them against each other. Right, this is how we arrive at the truth. Is the idea, and I believe it is a sound idea. Also, the argument for free expression is if it, it's really good to encourage people to express themselves liberally, so we can know who has these dangerous ideas. In other words, if you really believe that there are people out there with awful ideas that mean you harm, you might want to encourage them to express them so you know who they are. You can stay away from them. Uh, right. So there are lots and lots of ideas about this. But the most fundamental, I would suspect, is that these institutions that we've created, these American universities, which, in my view, are a hallmark of our civilization, they're a testament to our wealth, to our liberalism, to our openness, to our fundamental principles as a country, these institutions. They are a driver of our wealth and of our security. 
many of the innovations in health, in, in electronics, in, uh, in, um, in, in, in security have come from our American universities, rely on the free and open ex exchange of ideas. And they're committed to that. Many of them have mottos like Lux at Veritas is the model at Yale, light and truth. And, and that requires the ability to, to speak freely and to exchange ideas about any topic with anyone. Now, you don't have to listen to someone that you don't want to hear. You can criticize them. You can protest them. I strongly support the right to protest. You shouldn't, you do not have the right to silence them. So you can protest them is one thing, but keeping them from speaking by protest is a different thing, right? Right. And the reason it's different is not, if I protest you speaking on a campus, it's not that I'm harming your rights, although I might be, it's that I'm harming the rights of all my, all my fellow students who might wish to hear you. What right do I have to stop my fellow students from listening to you? So if some fellow students of mine invite you to campus to speak, I can protest you, but I don't have the right to stop you from speaking if my fellows want to hear you. That's not how we want our universities organized, in my opinion. So, um, because to whom would you give the authority to decide who you can hear? Like, are, would you willingly grant some group of some committee at Princeton the right to decide who you, Neil, are allowed to listen to? You'd be like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a smart guy and I, I can make my own opinions about whether I believe some person or not, or whether something is true or false. And I want to be able to listen to anyone I damn well choose to listen to. I don't want a committee deciding who I can hear. So, you know, so for all of these reasons, I think, and now often these things are inflected, not always, they're often inflected with issues having to do with race and gender and class, but there are other topics like climate change or evolutionary biology or violence, you know, theories about the origins of crime, for example. There are all kinds of people that want to censor their opponents from saying things they don't want to hear. And on the right and on the left, let's be clear, the threats don't only come from the far left, they also come from the far right. We have all kinds of right-wing legislatures that are trying to prevent people from being taught critical race theory or being taught certain uh, certain historical facts, for example, about our history, you know, which are also ridiculous. We shouldn't, we don't want to allow anybody to stop what is discussed or said on college campuses from the left or the right. So, um, you know, so I am, I'm deeply committed to this idea that this, 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 this principle of free and open expression is deeply fundamental to our, our society in general, to, to, the, to the moment in history of our, of our species and to our universities in particular. Yeah, and I, I certainly tend to agree. I think that like, perhaps like what people consider as dangerous ideas probably need to be challenged. And without an open dis debate, we just can't really discuss those ideas if you're not willing to go there. And that's probably something that's occurring in campuses countrywide where people just don't want to hear the ideas and hear people out. And I guess one thing that comes, go ahead, sorry. Or they, or they, or they fail to make a distinction. They, 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 they conflate the difference between speech and violence to say this speech is violence. No, speech is not violence. We can make a distinction between speech and violence. And if you're right. a smart person, you're able to make that distinction. What I say is different than what I do. If I, if I, if I say something nasty to you, that's different than if I hit you, right? And, and the law makes this distinction and it's ordinary common sense. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but uh, words will never hurt me kind of thing. So, you know, we have nursery rhymes about this. 
So there's a distinction between speech and violence. Now, it's true that speech can lead to violence, but we can regulate the violence, not the speech, right? And the reason we don't regulate the speech is, is for many reasons. Uh, first of all, in science, we don't regulate that because when you have, for example, something called Lysenkoism, you know, when, when uh, Stalin was really worried about the new, um, the new uh, discoveries in genetics in the 1950s, that uh, threatened a kind of idea in communism about like the malleability of human beings. And, uh, you know, it was just dictated that uh, that uh, Lamarckian evolution was correct, for example, just by fiat. I mean, this is insanity, uh, you yeah. know, uh, and uh, and um, and um, so we, we certainly don't want that in science and we don't want that even in, in uh, political conflicts either. We you know, we want to have free and open investigation of uh, of concepts, of claims, of ideas. We want to test them. We want to test them with, with data and reason. Uh, and so you make a proposition, let's test it, let's evaluate it. Uh, and then maybe we'll reject it and that'd be great. Or maybe we'll change our minds and accept it. I kind of want to, since we're at the end of our time almost, I want to ask the question that we ask all of our guests, which is how do you summarize all of that with one punchline? Like what should our guests or what should our audience take away from your message? Well, you told me you'd be asking me that and I was trying to think of something pithy and I'm gonna go with love is a drug. Very nice. I, um, I, I certainly appreciate you coming onto the show, Professor Christakis, and I encourage our audience to check out his, his books from Blueprint to um, Apollo's Arrow. He also is on Twitter. Um, any other plugs you'd like to no, that's fine. Thank, thank you for having me, Neil. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.